Jim Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the laws of war. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. And if you are finding the podcast enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends and colleagues, students, or indeed members of the media and other shapers of the public discourse. So today's episode is quite a bit different from what regular listeners will be used to. Instead of me interviewing a guest of the podcast, I have been persuaded to turn over my hosting duties to someone else who will interview me on a recent article of mine entitled Atmospheric Intervention, the Climate Change Crisis, and the Yusad Bellam Regime. So our host today will be Jasmine Johuran Nessa, who is just finishing up her doctorate and is teaching at the University of Liverpool School of Law and is an expert in Yusad Bellam issues, among other things. And she suggested to me via Twitter that I should have an episode on my article on climate change and that she'd be happy to be the host. And as an aside, we could have a whole episode devoted to the role of Twitter in the development of this podcast. It's been really quite instrumental. And I, I confess I was really rather reluctant to consider doing an episode on my own work, but Jasmine persisted. And while I disliked the self-serving tenor of doing an episode on, on my own uh, scholarship, I do think that the subject of the climate change crisis and how it's going to implicate the Yusad Bellum regime is so very important. And so here we are. I won't say too much more here about the subject of the episode, as it gets pretty well covered in our discussion in terms of where the idea came from, how it developed over time, and what the main claims of the argument are. And as always, there will be links to the article on the website, which again is jibjabpodcast.com. So with that, I bring you your real host for this episode, Jasmine Nessa. Well, Jasmine Nessa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today to talk to you about your article. Well, I guess that's actually my last act as host of this episode, and I'm not going to turn over <laughs> the reins to you and relinquish the hosting to you. So as we used to say in the Navy, you have to watch. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. So today we're going to be talking about Craig's article titled Atmospheric Intervention, the Climate Change Crisis and the Use at Bellum Regime. And in this article, he talks about how there will come a point in the future where we're going to see states using force against each other and justifying this use of force on climate change reasons. So basically what we're going to be talking about is climate wars. But before we um, start keeping in tradition with how you normally start your episodes, I'm going to ask Craig um, to share something about yourself, something that maybe people don't really know about you. So I, I realized in preparing for this, you know, how silly this question is. And I, I now sympathize <laughs> with all my, my other guests who have squirmed with this question. So, you know, I think my colleagues probably know quite a lot about me, but, and, and I think most of them know that I grew up in the island of St. Lucia in the Caribbean, but probably most people don't really know that I grew up on a boat uh, in the Caribbean. Oh, right. So for, I spent, yeah, several years, my parents, my mother and my stepfather were sort of 
I don't know, sort of adventurers in the hippie kind of mode and had this crazy idea of cruising the world on this 48-foot loop. Oh, wow. And dragging their, you know, five-year-old kid around. And so I... (laughs) Well, that's an adventure. (laughs) Yeah. So I spent the first, uh, you know, seven or so years in living in the Caribbean, living on a boat and missed actually quite a few years of my primary schooling, which raises questions of, of how I got into academia. Of course, they never did actually. Uh, cruise around the world. The most we did was sail from uh, New York City to St. Lucia. Uh, and I ended up moving ashore and going to secondary school, uh, I think around when I was 11, and ended up doing all my high school in St. Lucia. But it was, it was an unusual childhood, I guess. But it sometimes strikes me that this is true of a lot of people in international and comparative law, uh, just anecdotally anyway. I often wonder if, if you did the empirical research, if you'd find that a, a disproportionate number of people in the field have had some uh, sort of strange cosmopolitan experiences as, as kids, which somehow plants the seeds for uh, a future career in that direction. Well, that's really interesting. Well, I definitely didn't know that you had this growing up on a boat. That's, I was just thinking my five-year-old would love that idea <laughs> as soon as you said that. <laughs> So I think it's so important that we talk about climate change and how it might impact the use of Bellum regime. I mean, currently we're living through a pandemic and I think globally we're recognizing that apart from terrorism, there are other serious global threats to humanity. And now we're kind of starting to see this emerging realization that climate change is this real threat. And I think what's brilliant about your paper, Craig, is that you recognize all of this and you kind of predict what you think is going to happen next and how states might use climate change, well, to potentially start wars. And I I remember when I first read your article, my initial thoughts when I read the abstract actually was, okay, this this is a bit far-fetched. And I remember, I think it was during first lockdown, because I remember getting into bed it was about midnight and I came across your article and I thought okay climate change use of Bellum regime interesting I'll print it off because it is is midnight I'll just read the abstracts and then I remember it was it was like three or four in the morning and I just finished reading your article and I made (laughs) all these notes I couldn't put it down by the time I got to the end of your article I was pretty much fully convinced that I mean, we can call it Craig's prophecy here, that Craig's prophecy will come true. Um, So I think that's why we need to talk about it today. We need to talk about it because we need to stop Craig's prophecy. So I thought a good place to begin would be the beginning. Where did this idea for the article come from? I mean, you write it in your article that it's, it's a crazy idea. Where did this crazy idea come from? Yeah, so I was on sabbatical, actually. Uh, I had a a four-year sabbatical, and I spent the first six months at uh, the University of Pennsylvania at Perry World House, and then the second uh, four months at the University of Amsterdam at the the Center for International Law. And so while I was at Penn, I I had actually had a completely different project set up for my my sabbatical. Uh, But while I was at Penn, I started just sort of thinking about the small group of things that pose an existential threat to humanity. Uh, and among those, I think, you know, I think general artificial intelligence is one, nuclear war is another, and climate change increasingly sort of tops the list. Yeah. And I sort of began thinking, well, why am I not working on these? I mean, there's a few things more important. Uh, so perhaps really I should devote my attention to, to one of these. 
And it struck me, I mean, coming from a, a background or with an interest in, in the laws of war, that there was insufficient attention being paid to the way in which climate change was going to pose a national security threat and a threat to international peace and security. Uh, not so much by states. So governments have long recognized that the consequences of climate change do pose a threat to, to national security and potentially to international peace and security. I mean, the CIA, the Department of Defense in, in the United States have long been, been issuing reports noting that the consequences of climate change will pose a, a threat to the security of the United States and that the consequences are going to create sort of threat multipliers and, and therefore you know, contribute to armed conflict around the world. So states recognize this, but the public discourse didn't. And you know, the public doesn't think of climate change, one, sufficiently as a crisis, and two, in security terms. You know, there was a great op-ed in the New York Times around that time saying, you know, if aliens were causing climate change, our reaction would be entirely different. And so it struck me initially, I was trying to think, well, how do you frame climate change in more national security terms in a way that might galvanize the public discourse to really take more radical action to deal with it? Now, that's where the sort of the idea came from. Of course, it, it morphs a great deal and it ends up in a very different place from where the initial sort of conception. But that's how I started working on it and sort of diving into the issue of the relationship between climate change and the, the laws of war and USAID bomb in particular. Um, a good way to begin would be if you could, in a brief few sentences, sum up the core claims of your project. Yeah, so there's the predictive claims, which is first off that, you know, as the consequences of climate change get worse, as the crisis deepens, we're going to see a shift of seeing the consequences of climate change being a threat to international peace and security to seeing the causes of climate change constituting a threat to international peace and security. And therefore, you know, a, an effort by states to identify particular states as being the primary causes and therefore sort of being the scapegoats. And this, again, the second descriptive claim is going to lead to pressure to relax the Sad regime to either allow for the use of force and self-defense against climate rogue states, or to permit sort of unilateral atmospheric intervention as a new exception to the prohibition on the use of force. So those are sort of the predictive claims. And the normative claims are that those arguments are going to be really persuasive, and they're going to have a logic to them that's going to cause them to get traction, but that they should be resisted, that they are dangerous, that they are counterproductive, not only to the USAID bombing regime, but to the international climate change law regime too. And the second real claim is, as I just said, is that we got to start talking about it now. I mean, I really do think that this is coming. And if we care about this and we want to resist these kinds of developments, then we should start talking about it now. While the going is good, the pressure hasn't really begun. We're not responding out of fear, but you know, we can, with cool heads, start to talk about, well, how would we resist such efforts and find alternatives? Uh, and one of the ways, of course, to sort of cut this off at the pass is actually to do more to mobilize compliance with the international climate change law regime. So that's sort of the argument in a, in a nutshell. So you have this idea. And um, as you were writing, I know that you went and presented this idea at several conferences. What, what kind of reactions did you get? So I got 
really, and, and I was fortunate uh, in the sense that I started really working on it more seriously when I got to Amsterdam, and I had the opportunity to present it a couple of times, you know, just to workshop the early stages ideas in workshops in, in Amsterdam. And then subsequently, I presented it at a few conferences in Asia, in Manila and Osaka. And then finally, as, as it happens, the very last time I got on a plane was going to present this at uh, Columbia Law School for the symposium for where it was published in the beginning of March last year. And the responses were very mixed, right? So, and I got some very hostile responses. And, yeah, and I learned a lot from, yeah, so that, I mean, people were very hostile to the idea that you would, you know, suggest that you could use force and that you would somehow try to justify the use of force to enforce the climate change law regime or to try to punish or uh, modify the behavior of so-called climate rogue states. And, you know, so that there was a certain hostility to that suggestion, even though increasingly I was starting to to modify my position to, to you know, I, I started off being somewhat open to the possibility and for reasons we'll, we'll, we'll get back to. Um, but as time went on, I became persuaded that actually any such suggestion should be resisted. And that was part of my argument. But nonetheless, people raised, I think, the important question of whether there was an ethical obligation not to be creating blueprints for states to engage in this kind of use of force. So the one reaction was one of hostility, but the second one was sort of echoed in, in your reaction to reading the, the paper, which was that people sort of started off being very hostile and incredulous. And, you know, at the end of the, you know, or sometime after the presentation would come to me and say, you know, I hate to admit it, but I, I actually find the, the predictive aspects of the argument fairly persuasive and depressing for that reason. But, you know, I think, one sort of note that I think to take away from the process, I mean, the evolution of, of the thinking was it, it really reinforced the importance of workshopping and, and conference presentation because my thinking really did evolve considerably. And I benefited hugely from people, especially I think in Amsterdam, where I workshopped it a few times. And, you know, people like Terry Gill and, and Kevin John Heller and Mark Taylor, who was visiting there at the time you know, really pushed back and provided um, really strong arguments for why certain things should be considered differently. Alonzo Gramendi Dukelberg of Opinio Juris was another one who sort of gave me the Global South perspective, which I thought added a, a really important aspect to the argument. Okay, so coming to your article, so you start the article by exploring how climate change will be uh, will come to be seen as this security threat and how we will see it being recognized firstly as a national security threat, like you mentioned before, and eventually as a threat to international peace and security. But I mean, this idea of climate change you, you've mentioned as a security threat isn't entirely new. We've had calls for governments. I mean, you've, you've said it, some states already do recognize it as a national security threat. For example, we've also got Una Hathaway in a Just Security post last year who argued that the US needs to broaden the lens of national security to, to think about all serious global threats to human life, which should include climate change. But I mean, should we be concerned about making climate change a focus of national security? I mean, maybe we shouldn't be broadening the meaning of national security. I mean, after all, it, it is kind of this framing of climate change 
as national um, as a threat that you using your article as the first step to states having climate wars. I guess what I'm asking is, can securitizing climate change be the sure way to militarizing climate change? Right. So I think I think the the answer to the question is twofold. In the last part of the paper, I explore the reasons that I think that any attempt to expand or relax the use ad bellum regime to justify or legitimize uses of force against so-called climate rogue states should be resisted. And some of the arguments I marshal to, to say that we should resist those efforts is based on, in part, on the, the threats uh, or the risks posed by so-called securitization. And, and I use the term securitization in that sense in the sort of traditional uh, political science international relations conceptualization of the term, which is that you frame an issue as a national security threat for purposes of taking action that would otherwise be illegitimate, right? So that you take yeah. exceptional action that would be unlawful or illegitimate otherwise, but you frame it as a national security threat in order to justify it and sometimes do so pretextually, right? And so there has been a lot written about the risk, risks posed to democracy, risks posed to various legal systems, the rule of law, of securitizing issues that should not be framed in national security terms. So I, there is that risk, and, and I get into that in the last part of the article as one of the reasons, in fact, that we should be resisting efforts to, to relax the Usad Bellum regime to allow for this kind of use of force. But I do think that there is something to Ona's, uh, Ona Hathaway's piece, and she's not the only one who has been sort of in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, been saying, you know, it is surely time for us to rethink how we conceptualize national security, right? So there's this, and, and there's a, a long tradition of thinking of national security in more human security terms. Uh, and there is something really ironic, and this has been really brought home by the COVID-19 crisis, that you know, 3,000 people were killed on 9-11 uh, by Islamic terrorists, and that resulted in not only the invasion of two countries and the spending of trillions of dollars on wars, but also the violation of constitutional rights within the United States and undermining of, of all kinds of principles of international law, not least of which the Usad Bellum regime itself, all in the, in the name of national security. But 400,000 people have died from COVID-19 and the state can't seem to get its head around how to mobilize the forces necessary to deal with that crisis, right? And, and there's something to Ona Hathaway's argument that if we thought of these kinds of crises more in security terms, we might rethink how we actually expend our resources. And not, it's not to say you securitize and sort of militarize the, the response to, to something like COVID-19, but you do start to rethink, why are we spending so much money on counterterrorism and not sufficient resources being expended to countering pandemics or, for that matter, climate change? So in that sense, I, I do think that a security framing and a recognition that the climate change crisis is going to pose an existential threat to states and to you know, our way of life unless we take radical action immediately, right, then, you know, thinking about it in security terms in that sense may help to galvanize 
public action. Okay, so if we fast forward a little bit into the future, say we we do we do now have majority of states recognizing climate change as this security threat, as you've just described. In your article, you, you then go on to argue that what's going to happen next is that states will not only view the consequences of climate change as a security threat, but they're also going to start viewing the causes of climate change as a security threat. In other words, you argue that countries that make recklessly excessive contributions to climate change will be seen as constituting a specific threat to national security. So you use this phrase, recklessly excessive contributions. And you say that these countries that make recklessly excessive contributions, which you call climate rogue states, these climate rogue states will then open themselves up to having force used against them. So I, th- I think maybe it would be helpful if at this point you could just explain to the listeners, what do you mean by the phrase recklessly excessive um, contributions? And is it something that you think we, we can actually measure? And who decides that a state has in fact made recklessly excessive contributions to climate change? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, in part the million dollar question. So let me let me set that up maybe by just explaining and just fleshing out, you know, you've done a, a great job of just summarizing the point, but just to emphasize, the article has sort of some descriptive claims and some normative claims. And the, the descriptive claim is that as the climate change crisis deepens and as the consequences of climate of the climate change crisis become manifest. And and by this I mean the the, the real uh, extreme consequences. You, we're going to start seeing millions of climate migrants uh, on the move, you know, clamoring to get into countries like the United States on the southern border. You're going to see uh, the consequences in terms of droughts, floods, uh, which is going to strain vulnerable states. You're going to see the failure of states and so forth. And in the article, I go through a number of different scenarios that have been fleshed out by by a number of different groups studying you know the, the likely consequences of climate change at different temperature uh, gradients right depending on how successful we are at mitigating uh, in the next 30 to 40 years so as the consequences worsen my argument is that states are going to move from viewing the consequences of climate change as a threat to national security and to international peace and security to seeing the causes of uh, of those consequences, the causes of climate change, that is the countries that are contributing excessively to climate change as being a threat and therefore justifying collective action. So first you would see the call for the United Nations Security Council to identify certain contributing states as posing a threat to international peace and security, justifying potentially economic sanctions, that sort of thing, but up to and including the threat uh, or use of force to modify the behavior to enforce international climate change law. And and I, I grant you, this all sounds really rather fanciful and radical sitting here today, but we are only just beginning to see the real consequences of climate change. And so the argument is, as those consequences become worse, uh, as they um, really start to bite, states are going to feel the pressure to find scapegoats. And we see this all the time. We see, we've seen, you know, the United States has blamed Mexico for the refugee uh, crisis on the southern border in the last few years. 
France has, has blamed Italy for the, the migration con. And most recently, of course, the United States has blamed China for the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, there is this tendency to want to point fingers and to find fault and, and to satisfy domestic audiences that something proactive is being done to deal with those that are most uh, at fault for causing a crisis. And in the summer of 2019, when I was writing this, there were at least three publications, you know, The Economist, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, all had articles suggesting time might be coming where force might be used against countries like Brazil if Brazil was going to be completely irresponsible in allowing the Amazon uh, forest to be burned down. Well, we're at early days and already we're starting to see these suggestions being made. And so the predictive claim of, of the article is, we are going to see more of those kinds of claims. There is going to be a desire on the part of states to pin the blame on, on certain states that are seen as being outliers, as what I call climate rogue states. And this is going to lead to pressure to relax the USAD Bellum regime to allow for the threat or use of force against those kinds of states. So which this brings us to, and I'll leave the, the normative claims of the paper for later, but this brings me to, back to your question of, so how do you determine what is a climate rogue state? What is, and the term I use is you know, recklessly excessive contributions to climate change in flagrant violation of international climate change law. So it's sort of the recklessly excessive and flagrant violation. And those are, I mean, I just use those terms. They're not terms of art. But the basic argument, I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds here, into the international climate change law regime, but in the paper, I do sort of summarize the, the international climate change law regime, both in terms of the treaty law and the development of the Paris Climate Agreement and in customary international law and the, 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 the development of the no harm principle into both you know, substantive and procedural obligations and argue that this body of law has, has become sufficiently well-developed to create a framework against which we can measure whether states are more or less compliant with their obligations under that regime to meet certain targets, to be ambitious in their efforts to reduce uh, their contribution to climate change, or whether they are indeed complete outliers and are excessively contributing to climate change against the, the, the expectations that the, the international climate change law regime creates, and they're therefore in flagrant violation. Now, this raises a whole host of questions. If you were trying to litigate this at the ICJ, I, I would submit that there is no real clear basis upon which you could say, well, this state is in flagrant violation, and this is uh, recklessly excessive as opposed to some other contribution. And anyone who has studied international climate change law knows that there are a whole host of complex questions about, well, why are we measuring climate change contributions on the basis of states as opposed to like per capita, for instance, you know, or Canadians would love to do it on a per square kilometer uh, basis as opposed to a per capita basis, because depending on what metric you use, some states look better uh, on one metric than another. Uh, and that doesn't even begin to... Uh, deal with issues like historic contributions, right? So there is this concept in international climate change law called uh, common but differentiated responsibility and capability. The United States says that that should not be interpreted to mean historical 
any historical responsibility for all the CO2 and other greenhouse gases that have been emitted over the last 200 years. We're just looking at today. So there are all these questions, but the point is that the international climate change law regime creates a framework and sets the expectations. Whether we think normatively that it's the right framework or not, it frames how we think about whether a country is in compliance with more or less its obligations under that regime. And, and that's usually framed as you know, a percentage reduction of greenhouse gas emissions expressed as a percentage against a benchmark in, at an earlier time. 2005 is the benchmark used in, in the Paris Climate Agreement. Whatever we might think about whether that's right or wrong, that's the framework. And law tends to shape expectations and will be the basis of the political rhetoric. So my argument is basically that it's not a precise measure, but in just the same way that countries have labeled Iran, North Korea, Iraq as you know, the axis of evil and outlier rogue states for a reason of violating the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and developing weapons of mass destruction. I mean, you could argue that there is not a legal basis for classifying them as nuclear rogue states, but the NPT provided the legal framework that allowed for that kind of political rhetoric to be used, right? And it's no different with the United States classifying countries as state sponsors of terrorism, right? Again, those are not necessarily legally grounded terms, but the legal framework allows states to develop this kind of rhetoric and use it to isolate certain outlier countries as being worthy of sanction. Okay. I, th I think this would be um, a good point to talk about how all of that would fit into the Yusuf Bellum regime. So under the Yusuf Bellum regime, we know that there is a general prohibition on the use of force. We also know that there are two generally accepted exceptions to this prohibition. So first, we have the UN Security Council authorization, and then we also have the individual or collective self-defense in response to an armed attack under Article 51. So in your article, you argue that first, we're going to see this pressure on the UN Security Council to formally declare the conduct of these climate rogue states as comprising a threat to international peace and security. And then we're going to see the Security Council maybe authorizing economic sanctions against these climate rogue states, but that might not be enough to deal with these climate rogue states. So the Security Council might then have to authorize a threat or use of force, but this collective response might actually fail. And that is when we'll see this pressure for unilateral action, absence of Security Council authorization. And when that happens, we're going to see states, you argue we're going to see states embark on one of these two routes. Number one being, we might see the expansion of the right of collective self-defense, or we, we will see this creation of a new exception to permit collective but unilateral, what you call atmospheric intervention. Now, just before we talk about these two possible routes um, that states might use to justify the use of force, I think maybe uh, we should just explain what kind of force you're suggesting would be used by states. 
Right. Yeah. No, I think that's an important point. I remember Terry Gill in particular, when I presented this at Amsterdam um, on this point, he's like, you know, what is this use of force going to look like? And one sort of has in mind, you know, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the shock and awe regime change kind of use of force. And, And obviously, I think that that's not what is contemplated here. Right. I mean, the idea is that to the extent that that force would ever be used, I mean, so again, the argument is that there's going to be pressure, increasing pressure to relax the Usad Balam regime, to allow for the threat of use of force, to modify state behavior, to effectively enforce the international climate change law regime, to force states to comply with their obligations. And as you pointed out, I mean, the, the initial steps of that will be just to have the UN Security Council recognize that the both first the consequences of climate change constitute a threat to international peace and security, and we're almost there. The, the UN Security Council has debated climate change a number of times. They haven't yet precisely identified it as a threat to international peace and security under Article 39, but I think that that time is, is soon coming. Much a longer stretch to say that they're going to suggest that causes, and particularly the causes of any particular country, constitutes a threat to international peace and security, but that would be the first step. Uh, and as you say, then, you know, that might lead to calls for collective action. The problem, of course, is that permanent members of the Security Council would satisfy my definition of, of climate rogue state. I mean, certainly under the Trump administration, the United States would have been, you know, the exhibit A for a climate rogue state. You know, it was backsliding on every, on every metric. You know, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement would be clearly, I think, indicia of being a climate rogue state. So the UN Security Council is not going to do very much, I would submit. So, but back to your question of like, so what is a a use of force going to look like if it were ever to be used, I would suggest it would be really something in the order of a a surgical strike. And in the article, I I sort of have a hypothetical in which Brazil in in 2030 or 2035, I forget the year, is still heading down the road of, of being a climate change denier, is not protecting the Amazon. The Amazon is at risk of, of uh, what, what is called the dieback. It's one of these uh, cascades in which, you know, if the, if the Amazon is reduced by something as, as little as 5% more than it exists today, that it could trigger what's called a dieback in which the whole Amazon sort of collapses. Uh, and that would be catastrophic for the world. So in the hypothetical, Brazil is continuing to destroy the Amazon and is building coal-fired plants in an effort to force the government of Brazil to modify its behavior. You could imagine a surgical strike on coal-fired, you know, the construction of coal-fired plants at a time when almost no one is there. It's simply aimed at, at modifying the state's behavior, not unlike Israel's strike on the Osirak reactor in, in Iraq in 1986, or more recently, its strike on the nuclear facility in Syria in 2007. Now, you could argue, I mean, I would accept that both of those were entirely unlawful under Yusad Balam, but they might arguably have been quite effective in modifying the behavior of both Syria and Iraq in terms of the development of their nuclear weapons programs. So those would be examples of the kind of force that might be contemplated. And of course, those who would be arguing for the relaxation of the Usad Balam regime would be suggesting that one might not even have to use force. You just simply have to have the prospect of the legitimate use of force 
to modify state behavior in precisely the same way that the potential use of force against those violating the non-proliferation treaty potentially modified the behavior of states like Libya, South Africa, in deciding not to pursue uh, the development of weapons of mass destruction. So in, in justifying these surgical strikes that you um, speak of, these types of um, uses of force, states are, in your article, you argue states are going to either try to expand the doctrine of self-defense or they're going to create this new exception of atmospheric intervention. So if, if we start with the expansion of the doctrine of self-defense, would you like to just give a brief overview of how you argue the doctrine of self-defense will be expanded so that states can use um, force against these climate rogue states. So, and again, I think that when I would present this, people would be looking at me with puzzled uh, and incredulous looks of, you know, what are you, crazy? <laughs> well, this is kind of what I was thinking when I, when I, when I was reading the article. Right. <laughs> By I the mean, time I was on this point, yeah. You go through these journey of emotions, like you said earlier. <laughs> it's like, how could you possibly argue that one could expand the doctrine of self-defense to permit the use of force against a country for merely burning down a forest? Yeah. Uh, that doesn't come like anywhere close to the doctrine of self-defense, which of course requires an armed attack. The use of force is in response to an armed attack. You know, it's necessary, it's proportionate, it's it's immediate, and so forth. And I get that, but I argue that if you look at ways in which the Yusad Balam regime, and particularly the doctrine of self-defense, has come under pressure in just the last 20, 30 years, again, in response to what were considered to be or argued to be new and novel threats, right? And so I look at, in particular, preventative self-defense, which was developed, you know, the Bush doctrine was developed in response to nuclear proliferation and the development of weapons of mass destruction, the unwilling or unable doctrine, which was a response or is older than this, but it was really developed in the last sort of 20 years as part of the global war on terror as a way of countering transnational terrorist uh, and armed groups, the development of the Talon manual and trying to apply USAD Balam to cyber operations. These three in particular, all try to alter aspects of the doctrine of self-defense in ways that I think can be mapped on to any effort to relax the doctrine of self-defense for purposes of using force in response to excessive, you know, recklessly excessive contributions to climate change. So if you think of weapons of mass destruction and preventative self-defense, that what, what we consider to be the triggering event for the exercise of self-defense, the armed attack, it becomes entirely speculative. It's still there, supposedly. It's still, we're still talking about armed attack, but it's, it has really disappeared over the temporal horizon. If you think of uh, cyber operations, I mean, the Talon Manual and more recently state declarations, and I, I just had Michael Schmidt uh, on the podcast to talk about this, but the Talon Manual takes the position that cyber operations can rise to the level of an armed attack justifying the use of kinetic force in self-defense so long as the cyber operation has quote-unquote the scale and effects that causes harm that would be equivalent to or analogous to the harm caused by a kinetic armed attack. But some of the experts writing the Talon Manual took the position that 
the scaling effects wouldn't even have to be wouldn't have to cause harm of the same nature, right? It could be a different kind of harm, like not the kind of harm that would be caused by a kinetic attack at all. So like economic harm. And more recent declarations of states, most uh, obviously or uh, conspicuously France, has taken that position and said that a cyber operation that caused sufficient harm to, for instance, the economy would constitute an armed attack justifying the use of force in self-defense. So cyber has, has completely departed from this idea that you have to have an armed attack in the nature of sort of kinetic attack, right? And so the point of, of the examination of these sort of precedents of efforts that were made, some less successful than others. So preventative self-defense, the Bush Doctrine has largely been rejected, but it was nonetheless made by the United States and other states, and it continues to be supported by scholars and jurists and policymakers around the place. And it influenced the development of the unwilling or unable doctrine, which gutted the concept of imminence and similarly tried to divorce the triggering event of, of armed attack to some extent from the exercise of self-defense. All of these efforts have attempted to relax the key elements of the doctrine of self-defense. And my argument is it's not that much of a stretch to say that similar sorts of arguments will build on these precedents to say that, well, a recklessly excessive, flagrantly unlawful contribution to climate change is of the kind of scale and effect and causes the kind of harm that would be analogous to the harm that could be caused by an armed attack. And imminence has to be considered in terms that are no longer tied to sort of its temporal roots. And so therefore, we are justified in using force to prevent this contribution to an existential threat. Okay, so... So I agree with you. There are these examples we've got, from, like you said, preventative self-defense. You've got cyber attacks and how they have expanded um, the doctrine of self-defense and changed what we understand of imminence and armed attack. But if I've understood from your article correctly, in your article, I think you argue that in order to expand the doctrine of self-defense in the co context of climate change, we need to completely get rid of the armed attack requirement. And that's not what's happened in the examples that you've just given. And instead, for, for climate change purposes, we need to replace it with this new triggering event of recklessly excessive contributions to climate change. So, I mean, in your article, are you saying we need to completely get rid of the armed attack requirement? Well, I just want to be very clear, right? So, I mean, I haven't really talked about the normative claims of my article, but, but just to flag them right now, I mean, the, the normative claim of my, my article is that we should actually resist these kinds of arguments, right? I think these arguments yeah. are dangerous. I think that we should resist them. And, and I make, in the last section of the paper, I, I lay out all of the reasons why I think these arguments are dangerous. So it's not that I'm normatively suggesting that we should embrace these, but what my claim is, that these arguments are going to get made and they're going to build on the precedents that have been already trotted out to support preventative self-defense, unwilling or unable doctrines, defense against cyber operations. And what's more, my argument is that these arguments are going to be persuasive. And if we just zoom out, before I get to the specifics of your question, if we just zoom out a bit and think about the logic behind these kinds of efforts to relax or expand the USAD bellum. 
I mean, I have always been entirely resistant to efforts to relax the Yusad Balam. I've been very critical of the unwilling or unable doctrine in particular, but other aspects of this, precisely because I think it's generally, I think that more limitation on the scourge of war is better. I mean, whether it's in the context of IHL, Yusad Balam, constitutional war powers, my sort of default position is war is bad, we should limit it. You know, when you think of all of these efforts to relax the Yusad Balam, part of my argument has always been the risk posed by relaxing the Yusad Balam regime, that is the risk of increased incidence of armed conflict, of war between states, is far greater than the threat or risk that you're trying to address. Right? So here you are, you know, potentially undermining the doctrine of self-defense and making war more possible and more plausible and more likely simply to address a far lesser threat of transnational terrorism. And to me, that was irrational, right? That that was not sufficiently understanding the, the big picture. But when you take that argument to the context of climate change, it's not so clear, right? Yes, you may be increasing the incidence of armed conflict and increasing the likelihood of war, and that's terrible. But as against the absolute existential threat, not just to one country, but to sort of humanity's way of life, depending on, on, on the scenarios we look at, that might be an acceptable risk, actually, right? The argument might be that, well, yes, we're going to have increased armed conflict, but we're going to have increased armed conflict if the consequences of climate change get too severe in any event. And in order to try to enforce the regime that has created the framework by which we understand this, but is not capable of mobilizing compliance and has not got any enforcement mechanisms, then maybe it's worth that risk, right? And so that's one way to look at this, right, is that, that these arguments are going to come and part of the logic that drives them is actually pretty persuasive. Now, to your specific question of like, yeah, but are really you going to just get rid of armed attack? Well, as I said, I'm not going to get rid of anything. I don't think we should, I don't think we should embrace these arguments. But yes, I do think that at some point, the argument is going to be, we can justify the use of force against climate rogue states on the basis of their recklessly excessive contributions to climate change that are in flagrant violation of, of climate change law without having the triggering event of armed attack. In precisely the same way that the cyber, you know, the Talon manual and states' positions on cyber war are suggesting that, well, they're, they're still using the, the term armed attack, but it doesn't look anything like the kind of armed attack that we have in mind, right? It's, it's a cyber operation that has sufficient scale and effects that causes significant harm that might in some strange way be analogous to a kinetic attack. But really, if a cyber operation takes out the New York Stock Exchange, that's not analogous to anything like an armed attack. And yet countries are increasingly saying, yeah, but we're going to take that as an armed attack. And we're going to therefore use that as a justification for a use of kinetic force in response. Yeah, so the other um, route that you uh, say that states might go um, down is this new exception of uh, unilateral collective atmospheric intervention. W would you like, so this would be an entirely new exception. So this is separate from the doctrine of self-defense. Right. Uh, would you like to um, start by explaining how this new exception might come about and how 
it would fit within the use of Bellum regime. Right. So I, I do think, and, and again, from a normative perspective, I, I think these arguments about expanding the right of self-defense should be completely resisted and you know, are beyond the pale. As persuasive as I think that they're going to be, you know, not now, but 20 years from now, when the consequences of climate change become really severe. But I think there's an even stronger argument, a more persuasive argument, that there should be some new exception like what I call atmospheric invention. And here the precedent, again, there's a very strong precedent in the, in the terms of humanitarian intervention. And so, you know, I, I've had Kevin John Heller on the podcast talking about how humanitarian intervention as a descriptive matter is not an accepted principle of international law. And, and here we're talking about unilateral in the sense of not authorized by the UN Security Council, is not an accepted uh, principle of customary international law. And as a normative matter, it should not be. And so Kevin and others are, are very strong in their rejection of any sort of normative argument that we should consider expanding the USAID Bellum regime to uh, allow for humanitarian intervention. But others like Harold Koh have made very powerful arguments saying, no, no, we should, right? I mean, they start with maybe it exists or it's an emerging norm of customary international law, but in any event, normatively, we should embrace it, right? That things like Rwanda shouldn't be allowed to happen. And, you know, there's a whole debate which we don't need to reprise here. But my argument is the precedent's right there, right? And Harold Coe has laid out in his article for humanitarian intervention, this neat framework of how you would try to impose limits on when humanitarian intervention could be used, you know, like, so you'd have to go first to the UN Security Council, then to the General Assembly, then to regional bodies in order to have legitimacy, and you'd have to have necessity and proportionality and evidence that each of these elements were satisfied, etc. And my argument is, you can have the same arguments for atmospheric intervention, right? And you know, if you look at the responsibility to protect rationales for humanitarian intervention, they apply tatis mutandis and, and all the more powerfully to in the context of climate change. If a country is said to abdicate or lose some of its sovereignty by virtue of putting at risk its own people, all the more it should abdicate some of its uh, or lose some of its sovereignty and right to non-interference and non-intervention if it's putting the whole of humanity at risk. And so all of the arguments in favor of R2P apply equally or, or more powerfully in the context of so-called atmospheric intervention. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that this is right. And normatively, I think that this should be resisted. I prefer, you know, the reasons that I lay out in the article, which we can get into in the few minutes we have left. But, but I think that these arguments are going to get made and they're going to have some traction. They're going to gain traction as the crisis worsens, and they're going to be persuasive in precisely the same ways that the arguments for humanitarian intervention have gotten traction and have been persuasive to many people. Craig, I need to ask, um, I was wondering, um, why call it atmospheric intervention? I mean, why not climate intervention or environmental <laughs> intervention? <laughs> yeah, so I, I went back and forth on, on you know, what term to call it. I mean, effectively, I think that the underlying argument is that, you know, you are, you're contributing to greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. It, it is about your uh, actions in the atmosphere. 
So I don't have a good reason. I mean, <laughs> I went back and forth. I thought of climate intervention, but then that didn't sound right. I mean, I have colleagues at my at my school who insisted that I should call the article climate wars at the outset. So um, <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny that you, you used the term climate wars at the beginning. Um, I need to um, I need to ask you a question on evidentiary standards. So my doctoral um, thesis looks at state practice and the evidentiary standard of self-defense. So in your article, when you're talking about this new exception of atmospheric intervention, you hold that states relying on this new exception would be required um, to provide, quote, persuasive evidence, close quote. When you say states need to provide persuasive evidence, are you referring to a legal evidentiary standard here? And if so, what, what do you mean by persuasive evidence? So is it similar to clear, compelling, um, convincing evidence? I guess I'm just kind of trying to figure out where you, where you would anticipate persuasive evidence would fall on a uh, evidentiary threshold. Right. So really, I was borrowing there from Harold Coe's, I mean, I really just lifted Harold Coe's framework for humanitarian intervention and said, look, I mean, this is what we would expect the, um, you know, the arguments to look like in support of what I'm calling atmospheric intervention. And so I didn't really have in mind, like, again, I'm not arguing for this. Now, having said that, I have a pretty strong bias in favor of states providing evidence in support of their use of force in self-defense generally, right? Like leaving aside humanitarian intervention, in my article on the unwilling or unable doctrine, I argue that like, if states are going to invoke this doctrine, or in fact, if states are going to use force in self-defense in any situation, there is an onus on them to produce evidence that the use of force was necessary, that you know, if it was anticipatory, that really an armed attack was truly imminent and so forth. And what is the, the standard that we should apply? I mean, I don't really have a good answer to that. And to your question is, is this, it's not going to be in a court of law. It's really in the court of not public opinion, but the opinion of the international community. You know, so, I mean, just take the Soleimani strike this time last year. You know, I think that the United States had an obligation to provide, produce evidence in support of its claims that there was, in fact, a, you know, some kind of imminent armed attack. And at the end of the day, their arguments were a moving target as to what the actual justification was. But I think that states have an obligation to produce evidence uh, that to support their claims, whether it sounds in self-defense or in this case, in, in context of atmospheric intervention, that they satisfied all of the elements of the framework, whatever that framework is going to be. Craig, do you really foresee this new exception of atmospheric intervention being used against, say, states like the UK or in creating or talking about this new exception of atmospheric intervention? Are we really just creating a new exception to the prohibition on the use of force that can only ever be used against developing or weaker states? Yeah. And really, this gets to, and maybe it's a, it's a good opportunity to segue into my normative claims as to why all of these arguments should be resisted. You know, one of the arguments, uh, I think, uh, against entertaining any of these uh, claims or efforts to relax the Usad Bellum regime is one that you raised at the very beginning, which is that, you know, there's a risk of securitizing the climate change efforts, right? So, I mean, we're, we're, we have this unique challenge confronting humanity on how to deal with this climate change crisis 
and securitizing it runs, you know, does pose the risk of undermining and being counterproductive to the coordinated and cooperative efforts that, that we have to engage in as a species really to deal with this problem. Right? So the securitization is, is one uh, argument against entertaining these kinds of arguments. Uh, a second is the one that you've just pointed out, right, is that force is not going to be used against the climate rogue states that are permanent members of the UN Security Council. They're not even going to be used against countries like Canada or Australia, which frankly, you know, are at the borders of, of looking like climate rogue states from time to time because they're members or Canada is a member of NATO and Australia has strong allies. And so, you know, is a member of the five eyes. And so that seems highly unlikely. It's much more likely, as my hypothetical in the introduction to the article, is that it would end up being used against Brazil or Indonesia or countries of, of that nature. And that raises huge problems, right? And this is where, you know, the, the people who push back in my, uh, in my workshops and presentations said, look, I mean, looking at this from a Global South perspective, this is just going to add to the illegitimacy of international law, right? That this, this doctrine is going to be trotted out and then used against weak states in the global south. And the worst part of that problem is that it feeds into one of the weaknesses in the international climate change regime as well, right? Because the international uh, climate change law regime has this notion of uh, common but differentiated responsibility and capability. And what this gets at is that the truth that the powerful countries in the world are the ones that have contributed most to the climate change crisis. They're the least vulnerable to climate change. They're the best positioned to adapt to climate change. They're doing the least to mitigate climate change, right? The countries that are the most vulnerable have contributed the least to the problem, have the least capability of adapting. And so there is this great injustice, right? Inequity at the very core of the international climate change law regime and allowing powerful states to use force against global South states in the name of enforcing this climate change law regime is going to double down and compound this injustice and inequity. And ultimately, in my view, would undermine and be counterproductive to the international climate change law regime and to the international rule of law more generally, right? And so ultimately, so let me just back up and, and say that when you start broadening the perspective on how would you contemplate the viability or the justification for relaxing the USAD Bellum regime. So there's on the, the benefit side, you might be enforcing international climate change law in a way that modifies behavior and therefore increases our compliance with the obligations necessary to, to meet the, the climate change crisis. The cost side of the, of, of the equation, in terms of you're thinking about this in cost-benefit terms, is that you might be increasing the likelihood of war, right? And as I said before, you know, that may not feel like such a great cost when you're facing an existential threat. But I think when you zoom back out, and this is you know, often the problem with sort of consequentialist cost-benefit analysis uh, approaches, is that we don't sufficiently think of the second and third order costs, right? You don't, you're not casting the net wide enough. And I think when you cast the net a little wider and you look at the second and third order costs of relaxing the USAD Bellum regime for this purpose, 
you see things like undermining the international climate change law regime itself in ways that are counterproductive to the objectives of that regime. You see the potential of undermining the international rule of law and therefore the, the kinds of cooperation and coordination within that institution that are vital to meeting the existential threat itself. And so I think that when you start to view it in those terms, the cost-benefit analysis looks weighted far more heavily uh, on the costs or disadvantages side of the ledger. And this is why we ought to reject, resist, and talk now about how to resist these kinds of efforts. And that is the sort of the final normative claim of the argument is we have to start talking about this now, right? And so, you know, the ethical question that was put to me in some of my workshops and presentations was like, is it ethical to be developing a blueprint for how governments might argue for the use of force against states, right? Aren't you just being like John Yu here and, and, and you know, developing torture memos, is the analogy was made, right? And, you know, I thought long and hard about that. And I do think there are ethical obligations on scholars not to develop arguments that you might disagree with, but are going to then be used by states to do things that you disagree with. But I, you know, this to me was not the, the case of letting a genie out of a bottle that wouldn't have been let out anyway. It was really, we need to talk about this genie before it gets let out of the bottle, because it's going to get let out of the bottle. I mean, the predictive claim of the paper is this is coming. These arguments are going to get made. I'm just sort of laying out, you know, sort of steel manning what those arguments look like. But we need to talk about them now before the pressure starts to actually relax the use of the region. Because in the last part of the paper, I sort of tried to lay out the reasons why I think these arguments are really actually quite dangerous, uh, right? And not only dangerous to the integrity of the use of the regime, which I care a lot about, but also dangerous in terms of being counterproductive to the international climate change law regime, which is the very reason why these arguments are going to get made in the first place. Craig, I know we can talk about this for hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just getting started. <laughs> we're, just, we're coming to the end of the session, and I really want to um, sneak in another question if I can. Um, you make it very clear, and I like the fact that you make it very clear in your article and again on, on the podcast here that you do not think there should be this expansion of the doctrine of self-defense. You do not think we should have this new unilateral atmospheric intervention. I was just interested, though, um, at what point, because you did say earlier that that wasn't your position to begin with. I was just interested in um, what point did you change that position? You're quite right. My thinking did change over the course of developing the project. Initially, I was more persuaded by, you know, as I started developing the arguments for why the USAID Bellum regime could be relaxed, I was kind of becoming persuaded by those arguments and thinking, yeah, this kind of makes sense. You know, I really do think that, you know, the, the risk of, of more likely wars might be outbalanced by the benefit of, you know, forcing countries to comply with their international climate change law obligations. But it was indeed, um, I think, because of the pushback that I received and the critiques that I received from a lot of people that really helped me expand the scope of the analysis in terms of the cost-benefit analysis and to see some of the, the, the negative second and third order effects to the point where I was persuaded and really, you know, it's sort of pushing on an open door in the sense that 
my sort of instinctive position has always, as I said, been to you know want to limit armed conflict, whether it's in IHL, you said Balam or constitutional war powers. So I'm much more comfortable arguing for limits on you said Balam. I was uncomfortable with arguing for a relaxation, but my thinking really did evolve, and that that evolution was a really interesting process from uh, as an intellectual and emotional matter. Okay, so in keeping with the tradition of your previous episodes, I would like to ask you, Craig, to recommend three readings that you think the listeners would be interested in. Yeah, so I have been thinking about this a bit. I mean, there's so many, I mean, classics that, you know, haven't been yet recommended on the show. You know, Joram Dinstein's various treatises, Christine Gray's book on the use of force. I mean, there's a whole host of, of books, you know, Neff's history of, of uh, the laws of war. But I think the three I sort of settled on, which I think will be of interest. I mean, some of these, I think uh, I'm mentioning because I'm surprised they haven't been yet mentioned. And I think maybe they haven't been mentioned because people think they're obvious, but they may not be obvious to all listeners and especially students. So the one is a fairly recent book uh, by Scott Shapiro and Ona Hathaway called The Internationalists, which is, I'm sure you know it, but I think is really an outstanding book. And I know it has its detractors and its critics for its foray into quantitative analysis. But this book makes this really persuasive argument, I think, that the Kellogg-Briand Pact played a much greater role in changing the entire paradigm on the use of force than people realize. And not only does it make that argument really, I think, persuasively, but it's just a wonderful history of different aspects of the development of use development. I'm going all the way back to like this really rich sort of revisiting of Grotius. Uh, you know, there's the whole chapter devoted to a Japanese scholar, which I think is, is amazing, all the way through Schmidt and Kelsen. So it's a wonderful history and, and I think is just a great read. So I would definitely put that on the list. And I was surprised it hasn't been mentioned yet on the podcast. A second one is this book that's a little older, Lincoln's Code, The Laws of War in American History by John Fabian Witt, is this wonderful analysis of the development of international humanitarian law, the laws of armed conflict. And it has a, a particularly American sort of perspective, but it's, it actually is broader than that. It looks at sort of the European origins of some of these ideas, but it's just a wonderful history of international humanitarian law in the United States through the lens, of course, of the Liber Code, but um, not exclusively. So the third book I'm going to suggest, this is a little out of left field from most listeners of the podcast. This is a book I think most listeners will not be familiar with. I'm sure a lot of listeners are very familiar with The Internationalists and Lincoln's Code. But you know, part of my work has been on war powers and particularly war powers in the Japanese constitution. And most listeners will have sort of a vague recollection that Japan has this famous war-renouncing provision in its constitution. It's called Article 9, and it, it renounces the use of force for anything other than individual self-defense. And the story of the drafting of the post-war constitution of Japan is an amazing story. I mean, it is truly, I mean, it, it ranks up there, I think, with you know, almost the, the story of the drafting of the American constitution. And there's a wonderful history uh, called Partners for Democracy, Crafting the New Japanese State Under MacArthur by Ray Moore and Donald Robinson. And it is a, an extraordinary history of the drafting of, 
of the drafting and the ratification. So the process that takes, you know, sort of a year and a half, and it begins with 23 young Americans working for seven days, drafting the first draft of, of the Japanese constitution, including this early 20-something Austrian-born, American and Japanese-raised woman who really uh, is responsible for the very strong rights of women clause of the, of the Japanese constitution. But the several chapters on the drafting of Article 9 of the Constitution and how it incorporates language from the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which was being used just down the street in Tokyo at the time uh, as a basis for prosecuting the, the leaders of Japan for crimes against peace, uh, as well as language from Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, you know, the ink of which was just drying, it had just been negotiated and enacted in San Francisco. That language is, is incorporated into Article 9 of the Constitution of Japan, and the Constitution of Japan indeed serves as, as an example of this kind of incorporation of principles of use ad balam as a form of sort of pre-commitment device to lock in these principles into a constitution of a country. So it's a wonderful history. It's a wonderful read. And so that's my third choice. I've just added that um, third book <laughs> to my next reading list. Thank you for that. So, Craig, I, I really do want to thank you for having me on the episode to talk about climate change and the use of Bellum regime. And I know that we will be continuing this conversation on um, past the podcast. Uh, so thank you very much. Well, I mean, Jasmine, thank you so much for, for, first of all, persuading me to do this and for being such a wonderful host uh, and putting so much work into to preparing and spending so much time with my article. I very much appreciate it. So thank you. And stay safe. <laughs> <laughs> you too. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Keep a lookout for our next episode when I speak with Mary Ellen O'Connell of the University of Notre Dame on the concept of imminence in the doctrine of self-defense and so much more. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website jibjabpodcast.com. And you can also find links to the material discussed today and the reading recommendations as with those of every other episode on our website as well. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word, share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts and writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, and especially your students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at jibjabpodcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.